everyone to today's Environmental Humanities Book Talk with the Greenhouse. I am Dolly Jegensen. I'm Finn Arne Jegensen. And we're happy to welcome today Laura J. Martin, who's Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Williams College in the U.S., who will be discussing her book, Wild by Design, The Rise of Ecological Restoration, which is out with Harvard University Press in 2022. So Laura, we'll give it over to you to introduce the book. Thank you so much, Dolly and Finn Arn, for this for this invitation. I've um, the greenhouse series has been just this wonderful resource for me as a as an educator in environmental studies, and it's it's an honor to be on the other side of the of the screen and to be presenting about um, my recently published book. It was just published this month, Wild by Design: The Rise of Ecological Restoration. Um, with Harvard. And as Dolly mentioned, I am an environmental studies professor at Williams College, which is in the United States. It's at the intersection of New York, Massachusetts, and Vermont. So I teach in Massachusetts, but I, I live in, in Southern Vermont. Um, and I teach courses in global environmental history and in environmental justice at Williams. So uh, I wanted to give you, uh, I have about 15 minutes uh, to, to speak about the book before we open up for questions, and I wanted to give you just some background into my, my career and how I arrived at this project, and also give you a, an overview of the book's main arguments. Um, so I have a background in evolutionary ecology, and I discovered environmental history while I was training uh, in graduate school as an ecologist, actually. Um, and so I think about my, my pivot, my, my career pivot from ecology to history as, as still asking the, 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 the same fundamental question, which is how do people create habitat for other species, whether intentionally, like uh, with re restoration ecology or unintentionally. Um, and so, and the the question of how to create habitat for other species is, is one of the most pressing of our century. A paper that came out just a few years ago in the journal Nature found that um, as of 2020, give or take a couple of years, human-made objects, anthropogenic objects, now outweigh all of the living matter, living beings on Earth. Um, so roads, houses, uh, coffee mugs, smartphones and all of the other infrastructure of daily life now weighs approximately uh, 1.1 trillion tons, uh, trillion metric tons. And that's equivalent to all of the dry, the, the combined dry weight of all plants, animals, fungi, archaea, protists on the planet. Um, and in 1900, such artifacts weighed only 3% of what they do today, just to give you a sense of the scale of that, that rate of change. Meanwhile, confronted with, with climate change, with ocean acidification, with persistent pollution, and other extraordinary challenges, species are struggling. There's currently more than 40,000 animal and plant species threatened with extinction, according to the IUCN. And it's not just that species, individual species are going extinct. The numbers of individuals within a given species is also decreasing dramatically. So in fact, the earth has lost about 60% of all vertebrate individuals since 1970. Um, and at the same time, while humans are decreasing biodiversity, decreasing the number of individuals within given species, humans are also 
both intentionally and unintentionally creating habitat all of the time. Um, as anyone who has had a, a cockroach infestation or bed bug infestation is, is well aware. Um, so in, in 2015, my colleagues and I coined the term indoor biome to refer to the ecological realm comprising all of the species that live in and can reproduce in enclosed and semi-enclosed human built structures. So this was a collaboration among historians, architects, archeologists, and, and ecologists. Um, and if you add up the area of the indoor biome for just the island of Manhattan, including its, its walk-ups and its high rises, it's that, that indoor environment is three times bigger than the land area of Manhattan itself. So we argue that the indoor biome is a, a substantial biome, one that's the same or, or slightly bigger than flooded grasslands, than tropical coniferous forests and other important biomes globally. Um, and this is a biome that's, that's growing. Um, and so this is an example of people at least somewhat often unintentionally creating habitat for other species. But as we know, people also intentionally create habitat, a phenomenon that sits squarely at the intersection of design, ecology, and environmental history. So um, with climate change and habitat fragmentation, um, as Dolly's work and, and, and many others shows, maintaining wild places increasingly involves intensive human interventions. Um, and so I've, I've looked at this, um, again, in collaboration with ecologists and geographers and thinking about, um, for, for, for example, one um, kind of more out there paper that I've, I've written that um, the journalist Ed Young described as a, uh, um, uh, the matrix meets Ranger Rick, um, was this, this kind of hypothetical thought experiment to imagine what if machine learning technology could be used to design wilderness areas. Would this count as human design of wildness or would it be somehow more distant? Would that be a truer wild area if it was um, created by non-humans in this case, in this case, technologies that are of course designed and created and curated by humans, but themselves not human. And so we, in, we, in this paper, um, which came out in 2017 in Trends in Ecology and Evolution, we, we, we explored all of these tensions between technology and wildness um, and, um, and, and, and playing off of uh, Leo Marx's uh, The Machine in the Garden, we were thinking about the machine as gardener. Um, and that, that collaboration with landscape architects really got me um, familiar with, with a really different set of literature than, um, you know, than what then environmental history, a, a kind of parallel track of designers thinking about the concept of distanced authorship. The idea of kind of hiding um, or, or distancing or obscuring the designer in a design project. And this to me sounded very much like what was happening with uh, restoration ecology in the United States and in North America more broadly. So this gets, gets me to uh, this book project um, 
through working with ecologists, with land managers and designers, and thinking across different, different disciplines about the intersection of ecological management um, and environmental justice, I, I ended up, it, because I, at the, at the time, was also um, publishing quite critically about um, what's known as, as, as fortress conservation, the idea that areas can just be set aside from human use um, in order to protect species. And this often historically and, in, and ongoingly has involved uh, the displacement of people from their traditional homelands. And so um, kind of bringing this together, I, I became interested in, in telling a, a history of environmental restoration in the United States from the early 20th century to present, but one that really was an environmental justice history and, and centered questions of land ownership and the ways in which restorationists in the United States often unintentionally, sometimes unintentionally took, or sorry, often, often unintentionally, sometimes intentionally took um, unjust measures in order to protect non-human species. Um, so I, 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 in Wild by Design, I'm, I'm attempting to understand the, the relationship between environmental destruction and attempts to under, undo that destruction or the, the relationship between damage and care. Um, so Wild by Design analyzes the history of ecological restoration in the United States as an idea as a, a scientific discipline, restoration ecology today is its own subdiscipline of ecology, um, and also as a practice. So this I, a way in which you know this this project is really at the intersection of environmental history, environmental justice, and uh, history of science. And the intervention that I see in history of science is to really tell the history of this science of restoration ecology um, in the United States through practice rather than through ideas to look at to look at what land managers were doing as they were trying to manipulate species in the landscape and to look at the you know, physical constraints that ecologists came up against as they were doing field work. Um, and so I should say that, um, you know, ecological restoration is defined today very uh, capaciously. And by ecological restoration, I'm referring in the, in the book, I, I've constrained it somewhat because it is a, a sprawling and, and large umbrella. Um, I'm referring specifically to efforts to undo human-caused ecological damage while striking a balance between care, caring for non-human species, and also respecting and caring for other species' autonomy and self-determination. Um, so there's this tension between wildness and design that, as the, as the title of the book indicates, I'm kind of tracking throughout these different um, episodes in history. And I'm looking at ecological restoration specifically in terms of efforts to manipulate species. Ecological restoration is a broader category than that ecosystem restoration, right? Also includes things like restoring hydrological cycles. Uh, we're trying to restore nutrient cycling in an ecosystem. 
right? I am, I'm focused in this book specifically uh, on efforts to restore both single species, but also communities of species. And that, and I'm particularly interested in that shift from single species restoration to multi-species restoration. So ecological restoration includes diverse practices like controlled burns, uh, hiring snipers to shoot non-native goats on Isla Isabella in the Galapagos. Um, and the Society for Ecological Restoration defines restoration as uh, today as the, the process of assisting the recovery of an ecosystem that has been degraded, damaged, or destroyed. And those uh, familiar with the history of restoration will, will note that it's, it's interesting that there's not a, in the current definition of restoration, there's not a reference to a historical baseline. Um, and there's not um, necessarily, a, a, um, a, as there was in previous iterations of the definition of ecological restoration, it used to be um, that restoration was defined as an effort to restore a community, an ecosystem to a historical referent, a reference community that um, occurred in the past. Um, but ecologists um, and land managers have kind of moved away from this, this historical um, baseline system towards ideas like novel ecosystems. Um, one thing that really surprised me in writing the book is that I expected to find a much deeper history of historically based uh, restoration in the United States, because in, in working with ecologists and land managers in my, my previous career, um, there was the kind of narrative that this is the way that restoration has always been done. Restoration um, in the United States in particular has sought to, uh, restorationists have sought to recreate a, a pre-1492 baseline to, to uh, restore communities that were present prior to European colonization. Um, and it was extremely fascinating to, to go into the archives. And um, I've, I've looked at the archives of um, individual ecologists, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Nature Conservancy, uh, which is a US-based um, large uh, bingo, bingo a, a big um, environmental NGO, um, and um, as well as um, surprisingly the, the Atomic Energy Commission, which was the main funder of ecological research in the United States from the beginning of World War II until the mid 1970s. Um, and I was kind of shocked to find that restorationists did not think about restoration as a return to a specific historical community until the mid 1980s. I mean, we can talk in the q and I have some hypotheses about why the 1980s, um, but it there are these older modes of restoration that are focused on species autonomy, but not so much focused on the recreation of specific historical conditions. Um, so that was one surprising thing that I found in the book. Um, and I, I, I wrote this book now in part because there's such focus on restoration as a particular mode of environmental management. Um, it, I, I argue that it's the most influential mode of environmental management in the world at present with billions of dollars being, being invested in ecological restoration and the United Nations recently declaring this to be the, the decade on ecosystem restoration. So um, the book is divided into three parts. In, in part one of the book, 
I am interested, I'm looking at the, the places of restoration in the United States. And um, I begin by um, kind of laying out the, the, what has been the um, kind of received wisdom in American environmental history that um, within the United States and Canada, there were these two modes of environmental um, management natural resources conservation and wilderness preservation. And that preservationists and conservationists kind of fought with each other um, and disagreed on how to manage the environment. Um, and I, I argue that restoration was a third way. It was, it was uh, proposed as an alternative to both conservation and wilderness preservation from the very beginning of these debates. Um, so I begin with that um, period in the early 20th century and I look at the game restoration movement, the big game restoration movement, which I argue is a bit different from um, what I'm looking at in the rest of the book, which is which is ecological restoration. In that the game restoration movement is focused on uh, individual species of economic and cultural value. Um, and in chapter one of the book, I argue that uh, bison restoration in the United States is often celebrated as a, a, success, a success story, um, but the habitats that were remade for bison restoration were established on Indian reservations that the federal government was systematically dismantling under the Dawes Act in order to erode tribal sovereignty. So it's a, it's a well-known story in US environmental history that the, um, the slaughter of bison was an explicit, explicit tool of settler colonialism. Um, I argue that bison restoration was also a tool of settler colonialism in that it um, was a way of further seizing lands from tribes. Um, the first, the first five big game restoration sites in the United States were all um, established on um, Indian reservation lands uh, across the country, um, including in Montana, in Oklahoma. Um, and, and these two reservation systems, wildlife and Indian, shared not only a geography, but a logic of exclusion and white supremacy. Um, I then, in part one, go on to look at how ecologists kind of distinguished themselves from big game restorationists. Um, and in, a, in an attempt to kind of get their own experimental sites, foresters at this point had um, in, in both, um, around the world really, foresters had experimental stations. Ecologists did not. And so ecologists argued for the, the, the value of, of restoration um, in a specific effort to seek land for experiments. Um, and in, in the first part of the book, I also look at um, Aldo Leopold's very famous um, prairie restoration project at the University of Wisconsin Arboretum. Um, but I, I, I can decenter Leopold and argue that he was embedded within a very broad network of ecologists, including many women ecologists who were working on methods to propagate native plant species. Um, and I can, again, in, in Q&A go in, into detail about this, but the Ecological Society of America, which was by the 1920s very much um, 
uh, male run kind of engineered a hostile takeover of the female of, of the woman run uh, wildflower preservation society, which was doing this, this um, scientific work to develop methods of plant um, native plant propagation. Um, and so part of the reason that we remember this as a story of, um, of Leopold of cows of other um, of other men is is because of this kind of hostile takeover um, of the of both the narrative and the the resources the the monetary resources for restoration as well. Um, very briefly, in part two of the book, I, I analyze how the atomic energy um, how the atomic age simultaneously shaped ecological theory, uh, the rise of ecosystem uh, theory, and also the design of restoration sites. So um, the, um, I'm, I'm interested in the book in thinking about at what point did ecologists start thinking of environmental harm as um, irreversible? So it, it was the case that in the early 20th century, most, not this is an overgeneralization, but, but most ecologists thought that once a, a harmful action was ceased, a, a natural system ecosystem wasn't yet the term, but what we now call an ecosystem would be able to repair itself. So once once a, a community or an individual stopped plowing or or logging or um, um, uh, whatever the the damaging action was, the idea was that the the landscape would return to its its natural state. And this really changes in the 1960s. It changes with the rise of ecosystem theory, and it changes um, in particular, I argue, with a series of experiments that the US Atomic Energy Commission commissioned ecologists to do to try and simulate World War III. Um, and through these World War III simulations, ecologists began imagining a, a threshold of damage beyond which an ecosystem would not be able to repair itself. They also come to find through irradiation experiments that more diverse ecological communities seem to be more resilient to um, irradiation than less resilient than um, than systems with fewer species. And this is, of course, a very kind of um, intuitive idea to us today because the diversity stability hypothesis now guides most all environmental management. Um, but one of, and this is not the only, um, this is not the only origin of the diversity stability hypothesis, but one of the really important and previously overlooked um, kind of origins of this hypothesis is through these World War III simulations. Um, and I know that there's a number of, of European historians in the, in the chat room, so I would love to hear if people have found kind of similar stories. Um, elsewhere. But, um, and then part three of the book is looking at the uneven kind of propagation of the ecosystem concept through federal regulation in the 1970s and 1980s, which gives rise to the practice of, of killing non-native species and to the emergence of a new scientific discipline, restoration ecology with its own kind of professional society conferences and journals. Um, it's in the, this is the period in which land managers around the world kind of shift from a hands-off preservation model to a more interventionist restoration model. 
I mean, it's really in the 1990s where restoration starts to become consolidated, privatized, um, and large scale. And so I, I end the book, um, the last chapter of the book before the epilogue is, is looking at uh, the Walt Disney uh, Wilderness Preserve, which is one of the first and largest offsite wetland mitigation projects in the world. Um, and I argue that by uncoupling sites of harm from sites of care, this offsite mitigation uh, project kind of paved the way both conceptually and procedurally for today's international carbon offsetting market. So offsite mitigation is, is redistributing ecosystems around the world, but it's also reconfiguring relations between the global north and global south, fashioning the latter as a source of wild nature that's meant to kind of compensate for pollution in the global north. Um, and I end in the epilogue by thinking about how climate change is increasingly pushing ecologists toward um, further and further, in increasingly interventionist management, like assisted evolution um, and assisted migration, kind of purposely moving species from one place to one that's projected to be climate suitable in the future. Um, so I argue that we can see through the arc of this history uh, a shift from the expectation that nature can um, essentially recover on its own, left to its own devices, to, to the recognition that environmental thriving will um, into the future depend on active management. So I will, I will stop there. Yeah. yeah, thank you. This is really fascinating and intersects in, in so many ways to topics we talked about in, in other book talks as well. Mm -hmm. So I think this is this is clearly a book that's positioned to speak to many different debates in the field. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting to hear. Uh, and I, I wanted to start by asking a bit about um, this last point that you made, you know, this, this kind of arc where ecologists go from you know, seeing nature as, or the environment as kind of a stable entity that will recover on its own to something that depends on human intervention. Uh, and, you know, would you say that they are then primarily a, a field that is reactive, you know, they're reacting to external changes in the environment? Um, and I'm thinking particularly then, you know, in the, in the 1960s, 70s, which is also a time when you know, within environmentalism in general, you start getting this, this increased awareness of environmental problems as not something local, but moving in towards, you know, larger international trans-border uh, context and so on. And of course, today, like the Anthropocene, where everything is a big tangling mess, right? So, so would you say there are, uh, you know, what, what's the relationship between ecology and then these external factors? Yeah, I, I would say that there's a, a really complicated um, balance between this, um, what you called reactivity, this um, kind of ecologist responding to um, both environmental events um, like the um, like, like nuclear fallout from the, the hundreds of weapons tests that were done in the 19, or I, I don't like to call them tests, the web detonations that were um, that were conducted by the United States, the Soviet Union, um, England, France um, in the 1950s, 1960s. And then, um, so there's this um, kind of broader 
um, in this case, um, kind of lay person, non or, or general citizens call for environmental monitoring for a for a um, investigation into the health effects of in this case, nuclear fallout that ecologists then respond to, they are kind of reactive in that way. At the same time, they are constitute, they're, they're co-creating that, they're, they're um, creating that concern in some way through some of the um, radioisotope circulation experiments that they themselves are conducting. And so there is this, this dance or this, this back and forth. And I would say that different ecologists have different modes of, of 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 reacting to um, and I'm trying to think of you know one um, example specific to the book would be thinking about how ecologists thought about the role of fire in ecosystems and I think that land managers in general again this is an overgeneralization but um, land managers, Today, kind of how in the United States have the, the narrative that ecologists discovered that species are fire dependent and then um, started doing, starting pushing for controlled burns um, in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, the, the discovery narrative is, is a problematic one and it's a it's a much messier story than that. Certain ecologists were studying fire adaptation, but others did not believe in it. These were largely ecologists in the Forest Service who had whose job was to suppress fires. And so that shift from changing that mentality um, is a really big leap. So often it was people outside of the Forest Service, outside from other agencies. Um, and also the, the idea, right, that um, of this kind of discovery of, of fire adaptation as the, as the reason for controlled burning also totally elides the fact that um, ecologists in the 1960s and 1970s were also um, kind of speaking with and learning from indigenous groups in the United States who had never lost the history of knowledge of, um, of, of, of purposeful burning. And so um, in, we, could, we could say that it was a, a rediscovery um, of, of traditional land management practices that had been suppressed by federal and state governments as well. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, so I, I think in, in every example I can think of, there's a, a, a uh, a back and a two-way or multi-way um, relationship between ecologists kind of um, reacting to a broader cultural idea that nature in to think about the um, irreversible and reverse, reversible harm in the 1960s, right? That um, this broader I, global idea that nature is imperiled, that nature is fragile. Um, and, and starting to do experiments with that framing in mind. Um, and then also that idea emerging from the design of specific experiments like the World War III simulations that ecologists were asked to do for, in very different contexts for very different, for military planning. 
essentially. So I was wondering about how you think about within the book, or if you make a distinction between ecological restoration and restoration ecology, because I remember having That's been in a, in a group, right, that, that um, uh, they were restoration ecologists. So they, if you will, published in the journal Restoration Ecology, not in the journal Ecological Restoration, mm -hmm. which was for practitioners and in some sense, or there was a thinking, I guess I'd say that it was somehow unscientific or less scientific to be in ecological restoration. So I was wondering about that difference and if you deal with that. Yes, I've encountered the same the same distinction among practitioners, and I um, I have thought about this a lot. And indeed, in the the subtitle, I went with the design of the rise of ecological restoration. But um, for a while, I was saying that the subtitle was the rise of restoration ecology, um, because I think I'm toggling back and forth in this book between telling a history of the scientific discipline of um, restoration ecology, which is a a a, a it's bigger today, but a, a small subfield of ecology with its own journal, um, Restoration Ecology, the um, what is now the International Society for Ecological Restoration, which emerges out of, and I, I tell this um, in, in part three of this history in part three of the book, but it, it emerges out of um, natural areas, managers, meetings in mostly in California, but also some in, um, in Wisconsin, in um, Illinois, in the 1980s. And, um, you know, I think, I think one of the exciting things about um, this book is that the, um, you know, I, th I think within, within American environmental history, there's, there's been quite a, a bit written about um, the, the National Park Service, much less written about the Fish and Wildlife Service, which I, which I focus on, um, but kind of nothing, virtually very extremely little written about natural areas um, like those owned by the Nature Conservancy and by states. Um, and this is a really, this is a, a, a type of restricted land that it really doesn't um i'm going to see if i can find i i made a chart of this it, re it really takes off in the 1980s it's not a type of um type of protected area that is particularly relevant before the 1980s um, globally, but it's one that is really important today. So this is from chapter seven of the book, but you can see that natural areas, so areas owned by private organizations and by NGOs really skyrocket beginning in the 1980s, 1990s. And restoration ecology comes in, in as a scientific discipline comes, um, emerges in part from natural areas managers from, from state um, natural areas managers and um, the Nature Conservancy, the Nature Conservancy isn't the only um, NGO with this sort of work, but it's, it's one of the bigger ones. Um, Audubon um, uh, areas, right? Like the, the professionals working on trying to improve the environments of these landscapes, realizing that they're doing a, a work that is at the intersection of a lot of different disciplines, but that could be its own 
discipline. Um, so I, in the book and in general, kind of think of restoration ecology as the, the specific um, scientific discipline that, that emerges from natural areas management in the 1980s and has become an international scientific um, organization and identity. So increasingly more and more ecologists are, I, I think the ecologists I look at in the book until the 1990s or 2000s really identify first as ecologists and then secondarily as, as restoration ecologists. And that's flipping now, where I'd say people in the 2020s, there's many people who identify primarily as restoration ecologists, um, and then might also go to um, other ecological meetings. Um, ecological restoration, I'm, I'm defining and thinking about much more broadly as a, um, as a, as a mode of restoration that is specifically um, attempting to manipulate species and, and groups of species, communities of species, um, as distinct from what the Society of Ecological Restoration refers to as ecosystem restoration. Of course, the two are really closely connected. Um, but in this book, I, I wanted to focus on um, really the, the politics and, and, and history of attempts to intervene in the lives of, of non-human species. Um, and so I'm, I'm not capturing all of what is studied in restoration ecology. Um, and that was in part of what, that, that's in part what, what spurred the change in, in subtitle titling to, um, the rise of ecological restoration, as I'm, I'm thinking about this broader movement um, that extends beyond the, the ecologists identifying as restoration ecologists to also involve the public, to also involve um, land managers that might not, that might, you know, identify as, as wildlife biologists, for example, and not, and not restoration ecologists. All right, so we have a question from Libby. I'm going to unmute you. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Laura. I think you've started to answer my question already, but I was very curious about your statement that the 1492 baseline was big in the 80s and less big since because we had a 1750 baseline in mm -hmm. Australia at precisely the same time and it was basically wiped out by Aboriginal uh, activism and the rise of, of Indigenous self-determination where things we had bumper stickers saying wilderness is a white fellow word and things like that. So the, the idea that the that the country before 1750 was unmanaged by humans was deeply offensive to Aboriginal people. And although we have a shorter European history, 1750 versus 1492, we have a much longer Aboriginal history, which is now 65,000 years. And fire obviously has been used for all that period. So I'm just interested in how, um, well, I guess what the relationship is between having a baseline and not having a baseline is it can, is, has Daniel Pauly's work on shifting baseline syndrome 1995 been a factor that sort of put a break on the idea that the baseline was useful anyway? Or is it 
is it coming from ecology or is it coming from indigenous activism in North America? I guess that's my question. Yeah, I argue in the in the introduction of the book, and I'm, I'm really, I have all this I'm like distracted by all of this relevant material to your to your question, Libby, um, including like this is on my <laughs> this is on my on my desk a, um, a flyer from one of an infinite number of native plant um, organizations in in the United States. Um, the the fourteen the fourteen ninety two baseline in the United States has not disappeared. It's certainly still the the target of many restoration groups. Although I would say that it's been um, roundly critiqued both from the, um, from indigenous activists, from archeologists, from geographers, from historians, environmental historians, um, and also from ecologists. And so in, in the, I might just read a, a paragraph of the introduction, actually, because I, I argue, and I, I'd be curious to hear people's response to this argument. Um, I argue that the, the shift from, away from historical baselines and ecology in the United States and toward um, what you know ecologists are referring to as novel ecosystems or an embrace of um, unprecedented or, or um, never before seen configurations of species, um, that, that that came less from engagement with um, activists and the humanities and more from an internal ecological literature about the impossibility of removing invasive species, um, non-native invasive species and um, and that at least the people that are that ecologists are speaking about and citing in novel ecosystems literature are are rarely the the humanists. So um, I write uh, the verb to restore and its relatives to reinstate to reestablish to repair to reconstruct also suggest a return to a past historical state. Um, indeed, in 1990, the founders of the Society for Ecological Restoration defined their practice as, quote, the process of intentionally altering a site to establish a defined indigenous historic ecosystem. Um, and that contrasts to the, the definition that I, I today that I, I read um, in the intro. Today, many land managers in the United States continue to base their restoration goals on historical baselines, inferring the ecological history of an area from documentary sources, written descriptions, historical photographs, maps, and even paintings, and from analyses of biological archives, such as tree rings and fossil pollen. Um, and I go on to say, in the United States, restoration ecologists often endeavor to establish a pre-colonial baseline, um, eradicating invasive non-native species that arrived after European colonization but in the past two decades, ecologists and historians have criticized the use of historical baseline and restoration from multiple angles. The first critique has been empirical. Archaeologists and ecologists have shown that present ecological communities are shaped by past land uses um, that um, extend to antiquity. So in Northern France, the intensity of Roman era agriculture still influences the number of species found in forests that have not been farmed for nearly two millennia. Um, traces of ancient Mayan gardens can be found in modern Belizean forests. So contemporary ecosystems reflect a very long human history, which makes it difficult or impossible to identify a pre-human baseline. The second critique is political. Indigenous people managed American ecosystems long before European colonists did, 
and to mark 1492 as the beginning of anthropogenic landscape changes to erase that history. Um, to imagine pre-colonial lands as empty or pristine as restoration ecologists sometimes do perpetuates a foundational and pernicious uh, myth of settler colonialism, namely that Europeans came upon unsettled lands. A handful of historians have also critiqued ecologists for using historical records uncritically, uh, that is for failing to interrogate the conditions of archival production and reception, the ways in which scientific practice has changed over time and the fragmentary nature of uh, both uh, written and biological archives. But despite the importance of these points, it was not primarily critiques from the humanities that motivated restoration ecologists to shift away from historical baselines, but rather research on the trajectory of global environmental change. And it's increasingly difficult to imagine reversing such changes on a large scale. If we think about um, climate change, uh, scientists predict that climate change taking place um, because of uh, increases in atmospheric greenhouse gases will be largely irreversible for at least a thousand years after emissions stop. Species are already found where they were not before, but we have persistent organic pollutants and so on. And so, so I argue that um, the kind of novel ecosystems literature is, is responding very much to these um, scientific studies of large scale, seemingly irreversible ecological changes. Um, of course, that is a, an overgeneralization and there are some ecologists that are very much engaged with historians and geographers work. So uh, just tell me that was all in chapter one, what you were reading at? Uh, that was all in the, in the introduction. Introduction, great. I've got the book and uh, thank you for that. That was, that was terrific. Um, yeah. The idea of the, um, the it, it, not, taking no notice of the humanities is not a surprise to us here in Australia. Uh, the activists, the Aboriginal activists are, are real people. Uh, artists are real people. But historians and the humanities are invisible for, for ecologists. So that, that is just not a surprise. <laughs> But thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. So to just continue slightly then on that, because you described yourself um, in the in presentation beginning, you know, come with a background in uh, this natural sciences and you came then into environmental history. And that, you know, we have lots of examples of, of excellent environmental historians with similar backgrounds. And so I was curious to hear a bit about what that background has done for you in this particular book project that you might not otherwise have been able to do? Yeah, I think that the um, two things that, that, my, that my background in ecology and evolutionary ecology, first off, um, brought me in with a set of questions about the relationship between the, the doing of science and the making of policy that I um, might not otherwise have had very specific ones to, to ecological restoration. Um, the, the second is that I, I do think that um, having myself worked with ecological data sets, I um, read a lot of sources that um, are um, not often, I think, the, the most interesting uh, or, or most analyzed um, sources in, in environmental history. So, um, so just for one example, I, um, there's a, a very famous paper by um, Eugene and Tom Odom on coral reef 
mutualism um, is work done in the 1950s sponsored by the Atomic Energy Commission where the Odom brothers argued for a, a symbiotic relationship between coral polyps and um, the, the algae that, that photosynthesized for them. It's a, it's a super, it's, it was one of the kind of foundational papers in symbiosis theory um, and in ecosystem theory, because they trace the, the flow of, um, of, they trace metabol what they're called community um, metabolism, um, right, in early kind of instantiation of the, of the ecosystem concept. Um, and I went through and re-ran um, the Odom's data and found discrepancies between their, their field notes and their published paper. So either this was intentional data fraud or it was unintentional, um, it was an unintentional transcription error, error, but it was substantial enough that I think it was probably some fudging of the, of the numbers. And so I, I found, I think things like that, that if I had not um, had a fluency in, in you know, data analysis, I, I might not have, um, I may not have spent as much time as I, I did looking at, at pages and pages of, of field notes. Um, yeah. Well, so Gerard had a question um, about, well, the Atomic Energy Commission and these World War III scenarios that they run. Uh, would you anticipate something similar happening with climate change scenarios? So are people already potentially using those and that's affecting the way people understand um, ecological restoration or even more largely, you know, ecology as a, as a discipline um, based on that kind of scenario? That's a great question. And it's, um, I've been thinking about this a lot actually, because I mean, I'm pitching a, an article to a, a magazine about exactly this question um, because there are um, at some of the same sites. So I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the Luquillo experimental forest in Puerto Rico, um, which which Megan um, Rabbi has written um, about its kind of deep deep colonial history and how that's made it accessible as a as a um, an ecological field site. Um, the Luquillo is one of you know a a, a dozen or so. Um, sites where, where ecologists simulated nuclear attack. So this was ecologists, and I this is in um, chapter five of the book. Ecologists, American ecologists were um, contracted by the US Atomic Energy Commission to go to the sites of detonations in the colonized Marshall Islands and in Nevada um, to study what the biota looked like after detonation. With the partial test ban treaty in 1962, ecologists lose access to new detonation sites and they start simulating nuclear attack by putting out sources, usually um, cesium-137, um, just rods of it in forests um, and irradiate forests from the length of you know, three months to years, um, the Brookhaven irradiation experiment ran for more than a decade and the deer at Brookhaven are now, are still radioactive. Um, so the, at Lucio, Lucio was one of the um, first experiments for this um, kind of simulated nuclear attack that tried to separate out the effects of radiation from blast. And um, 
Lucia is also a site where today there's both uh, hurricane simulation experiments and climate change simulation experiments. So putting a tent over in whole area and increasing the carbon dioxide and seeing how plants respond, right? These same simulation, I'm thinking about in the book, I think about the rise of, of, of simulation as a mode of environmental, as a mode of ecological experimentation and how that arises through these World War III um, uh, experiments. Um, and that does set precedent for thinking about simulating other natural disasters and then human-caused disasters. And so um, another kind of experiment that I look at in the book that I argue is um, related to these World War III simulations is E.O. Wilson's and Dan Simberloff's famous um, island biogeography experiments in the Florida Keys where they um, put tents over entire islands and fumigated them to see what um, insect species recolonized them. And this itself is a, is a type, I argue, a, a type of simulation um, and is kind of dependent on um, this idea of, of destroying an ecosystem in order to see how it functions. Um, I'm very interested, I, I don't talk about this in the book, but I am really interested more in, in the connections between like, destruction as a, as a, as a, a mode of, of experimentation in biology that has a longer history and thinking about like vivisection, right? And that, um, the shift in scale from destroying individual organisms in order to to study them to destroying entire communities of, of ecosystem of um, organisms or, or what we now call ecosystems to to try and understand how they reassemble themselves and repair themselves. So time flies, but I want to sneak in one question um, about something you, you you mentioned in the beginning. We're talking about the role of technology here, so I wanted to ask a little bit about that. Uh, how you know, is modern uh, restoration ecology dependent or does it use technology in particular like sensor technologies in order to monitor and act on uh, ecosystems? I mean, I mean, thinking like uh, we have projects like Jennifer Gabrice's new product on smart forests, which is all about, you know, mm -hmm. how, how you can sense what's going on in ecosystems. So how important is that? What's, what's happening there? Yeah, um, I, there are, I can think of a lot of different examples from this, this particular history. Um, so to, to name very quickly, just um, a couple of technologies that, that come up in the, in the book, um, Wild by Design. Um, women ecologists in the, the 1920s, 1930s, in thinking about how to germinate um, and propagate native plants, start using refrigeration technology. And because a lot of species in the Northeastern, um, it, it, on the East Coast of the United States and Canada require a, an overwintering period in order to germinate. Um, and so they're able to simulate this with, with refrigerators. Um, so that is a, a very early use of technology in, in restoration. Aldo Leopold himself was really interested in the place of technology in restoration. Um, 
there's um, and, and thinking about like the shovel as technology, right? Um, thinking about guns as technology, gun, so I, I should say that guns are a, a, a big part of early restoration. And I argue that game restoration is proposed restoration as an alternative to um, in part in response to the gun lobby pushing for um, for restoration rather than the further restriction of hunting. Um, so it's seen as a way out of restrictive gun laws um, in the United States. Um, there's of course the atomic technologies um, and um, how those factored into um, how radio tracers lead to the rise of the ecosystem concept. And then in the paper that I mentioned at the um, beginning of our conversation about um, this collaboration with landscape architects and geographers, we think about some of the, um, the machine learning technologies that are already being used in restoration. So there's um, semi-autonomous robots that are um, injecting crowns of, crown of thorns starfish, um, which are a, a, a native but invasive starfish in the Great Barrier Reef, um, injecting them with saline to kill them. Um, there's, there's definitely, as you mentioned, monitoring using machine learning um, for um, bird strikes on power lines in Hawaii, for example. Um, so these, the, there are um, all of these new technologies being used in restoration as well. Well, we want to thank you very much, Laura, Laura Martin, uh, for coming on and talking with us today about Wild by Design, the rise of ecological restoration uh, with Harvard University Press 2022. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming.